This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast for September 17th, 2009. I'm Andrew Whitaker, Communications Manager for the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. We pick up today's podcast with CMS Director William Arricchio introducing Ethan Gilsdorf, author of the newly released title Fantasy Freaks and Gaming Geeks, an epic quest for reality among role players, online gamers, and other dwellers of imaginary realms. On bookshelves now. So, Ethan Gilstorf, I mean, I think you guys probably know the name, and he's, he writes for the, the New York Times, Boston Globe, Washington Post, uh, LA Times. I think you write pretty widely. Uh, it's a book that's uh, from the heart. It was a pleasure to read. It's, you've got a set of endorsements like a mile long. Uh, that's a coup in itself. And it struck me when I read it. So, so Ethan is like an avid was, and I suspect is still, an avid D&D player. And um, this book, in a certain sense, it's very autobiographical. It's very much about coming to terms with and trying to understand. And then it struck me all of a sudden, this is a quest. Like, you, you're on a quest, and that quest didn't just stop with what you were covering for the book, but it's going on kind of right now. Exactly, yeah. Even, um, <laughs> So it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to introduce uh, Ethan, and uh, the floor is yours. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you, um, William. Thank you, Department of Comparative Media Studies. Is that correct? That is correct. And thank you for all, com- all of you for coming. It's very, I'm very flattered that you're all here. And I'm, I have to admit, I'm a tiny bit intimidated to be speaking uh, here. Um, because while I, I was a D&D geek, I was not a science math geek. About as far as I made it was uh, trigonometry in high school, and that was the end of my career as a mathematician. <laughs> in my senior year, I just sort of didn't take any science or math classes. Uh, and then I went to Hampshire College, where you didn't really have to study anything you didn't want to. Um, anyway, um, and I, the, the plan uh, for this talk and lecture is to talk at you and include you a little bit for approximately 45 minutes. Uh, if I approach the 6 o'clock hour, I will try to rein it in. And then we'll have time for a Q&A or just general discussion or for you to share your own geek moments, uh, whatever it may be. Um, and I, I guess I, I probably, I do have a couple slides that kind of go along with the talk, but I'm going to sort of do it a little bit free form. I think. Um, as William mentioned, I'm a journalist. Uh, my original training is actually as a poet uh, with an MFA in creative writing. I have very little um, uh, expertise in this area as an academic. I guess that you could say I'm a reformed or recovering academic um, who got out and decided to, to approach this from the, from the journalism point of view. And I'm, I, I guess you could say I'm a sort of an amateur Tolkien scholar and, as William mentioned, D&D player recovering D&D player, ongoing D&D player. And I was thinking about this as we were getting all this configured, is that I am also a former uh, AV club president of my high school. So, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and I was just about to start to pick up my notes, and I realized that actually the, le- the, the title of this talk is From Particles to Waves, uh, the grand plan. This is, these are not my notes, but anyway. Um, anyway, thank you all for coming. Um, as, as William mentioned, the book is sort of first-person uh, immersion journalism um, approach to the subject matter. So it, it follows sort of my own story of 
my past as a, as a role-playing gamer, having put that behind me, having rediscovered it later in life, and then the book itself is a, essentially is a journey or a quest to rediscover to what extent fantasy and gaming has become incredibly popular, incredibly uh, prolific, and compared to when I was playing D&D back in the Reagan administration, incredibly uh, more acceptable as a way to spend time. Um, and one of the things that I found as I was going on the road to do the research, which mostly happened last year, um, each chapter of the book is essentially a, an examination of a different phenomenon. So there's chapters on uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and I attempt to, is that okay? Oh, I just went to sleep, all right, uh-oh. That's okay. I went to, um, in search of Gary Gygax, everyone, Gary Gygax, yes, some of you know who he is, co-founder of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, tried to track him down and play D&D with him. Uh, I participated in a live action role playing game, which is a lot like D&D, except you dress in costume and play a character for not just, let's say, four or five hours, but a whole evening, perhaps a whole weekend, perhaps longer. Uh, there's chapters in there about uh, Harry Potter fandom, about um, costume play, cosplay, and, and other kinds of fantasy conventions where people attend in costume. There's chapters on, on online gaming, World of Warcraft, um, the Society for Creative Anachronism, and so forth. And as I went around and traveled uh, across the country and also went to England, France, and, and to New Zealand, people were very concerned about my approach or my, my take on the topic. Why? Well, because for the most part, people who game, who are involved in these fantasy pursuits, have been ridiculed, made fun of, been burned by the media um, many times. And their concern was, what, Ethan, is your geek cred? Where, who, who, are, who are you? Where do you come from? Do you come in peace? Are you one of us? Are you a member of our tribe? And I, I made it clear to them that I'm a former, uh, possibly future Dungeons and Dragons player. I got sucked into the Lord of the Rings movies when they came out, uh, read the trilogy God knows how many times. I'm one of you if you're not. So what I've been doing when I've been going on this book tour, which is just beginning, as William mentioned, the book is fresh off the press. It's only been out since September 1. Uh, and I have about a 45 city tour lined up. And fortunately, this is a local event for me. I live in Somerville but I'll be hitting the road. Um, but everywhere I've gone, I've been testing the geek cred of the crowd to see where you guys stand. So I have a couple questions that I wanted to ask you, and there are some incentives for, um, for answers. Namely, inside the magical bag of holding, we have uh, <laughs> some items. So the first one's kind of an easy one, but we'll just start with the easy ones. And this is... Uh, um, a question that relates to the Lord of the Rings universe. And all right, I'll tell you what the prize is later, actually. Um, the full name, and the way this works is you raise your hand, and then whoever raises their hand first, I try to identify them and call them. If everyone just starts shouting it out, then my experience has been there these melees break out and it's very ugly. So if you know the answer, just raise your hand and then we'll call on you. So the full name of Frodo's loyal sidekick in the Lord of the Rings. Give me in the back. Samwise Gamgee, very good, congratulations, all right. So, we have some, we start with the little prizes. We start with little prizes. I have a, a bag here of 20-sided die. Ah, well, there you go, you get one for that. Okay, now we're gonna move to the uh, Star Wars universe. Um, the name of the actor who portrayed C-3PO. Yes. Anthony Daniels is correct. All right. Now, what you get for this is 
Um, I've made up some customized um, graph paper pads of paper <laughs> so you can design your own Dungeons and Dragons map and you get a couple D20 just for fun. So this is, says design your own D&D dungeon courtesy of fantasyfreaksbook.com awesome. and there you go. Thank you. All right. Now, slightly harder question. You guys are doing very well so far. Um, still in the Star Wars universe, what planet, the adopted home of Princess Leia, did the Death Star destroy in episode four? Yes. Alderaan is correct. All right. So the prize for this, I have some friends who have, um, have coming out with a brand new movie that was at the Somerville Theater a few weeks ago. It's also now out on DVD. It's called Second Skin. And it is a um, documentary about gaming culture, particularly some WoW player, World of Warcraft players. So, all right. Now to the Harry Potter universe. How many players on a Quidditch team? Yeah. Seven, Seven is correct. All right. You can have either a second skin t-shirt, which interestingly enough comes in two sizes, large and double extra large. <laughs> they sent me a bunch of t-shirts would you like large or double extra? Uh, large. large, there you go, okay. All right. Um, Harry Potter again. Who can name all four houses at Hogwarts? You've already answered one. You've already answered one. Anyone else? I know, I know. But a lot of people don't know this. So for some people... All right. Yes. Okay, very good. So you get a t-shirt to go with your, to go with your uh, DVD. All right, um, two more questions. Um, and the, what is the prize for this one? I guess another DVD. Back to Lord of the Rings. The password to enter the Mines of Moria via the West Gate was what word and what is that word in Elvish? <laughs> Juno knows this. You haven't answered yet, so let's hear it. Come on. Yes, nice. And what does it mean? Wow. Not only does he know that it's Elvish, knows the Elvish word, but he knows it's Sindarin and not Kenya. So that's very impressive. You're going to get a DVD and you're going to get a pad of paper. This is, all right. Another Ethan? Okay, all right. Your personal assistant? Okay. Um, and then this is just one to see if anyone knows this. What is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? Yeah. Very good. <laughs> Very good. All right, you can have um, either some 20 sided die or you can have a pair of elf ears or hobbit ears. You'll take the dice. All right. You can, have, you can have as many as you roll. How does that sound? So roll the die. If it's under 10, 16, that's too many. Or you get six. How's that sound? All right. Don't. These are ch a choking hazard. There you go. Congratulations. Okay. So I'd say your geek cred is pretty high. You guys know what you're talking about. Um, and I, I imagine already we have a fair number of current or for, former Dungeons & Dragons players here. Okay, people who read Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter once. People who've read it three times, either book three times, 17 times. Okay, people who have a World of Warcraft character level 50 or higher. Okay, anyone who's watched 
the Lord of the Rings trilogy back to back and cooked a Hobbit breakfast for their friends? <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so on to, I think what I'll do is um, just move ahead here on this. I, this, is the, this is the lecture, uh, Fantasy Freaks, Gaming Geeks, the subtitle being An Epic Quest for Reality Among Role Players, Online Gamers, and Other Dwellers of Imaginary Realms, or How I Got My Geek Back. Um, so this is the book. This is what it looks like on the outside. Um, now this is my psychology notebook from high school, which, no drama, I'm sorry, this is drama. Uh, and it was later cannibalized because I was into drawing D&D maps. Now, the reasons for me playing Dungeons and Dragons, as I said, back in the 1970s and 1980s, I played pretty, pretty religiously from about 1978 till 1984. Now, you have to just sort of go back in time a little bit and think of a person who looks a lot like me, who looks a lot like this person on the front of the book, um, who was fairly introverted, fairly shy. And in my particular case, this game came to me, this game Dungeons and Dragons came to me at a particular time in my life, which was a difficult time. Uh, my mother had been stricken down by a brain aneurysm, which had ruptured. She was actually in, living in Cambridge at the time. And uh, she was disabled for the remaining 19 years of her life. She was very much of a changed person. She was partially paralyzed and had huge changes in personality and behavior. And it seemed to me at the time, although I would never would have known it as a kid, that this game, Dungeons & Dragons, seemed like a logical place to go, sort of escape-wise, okay? Um, and so the book is an attempt to think about why I was attracted to this stuff at the time, and also why I put it away, because here's what happened. I played it quite often, I think probably every Friday night from about 5 to 11 p.m. until my senior in high school. Then I discovered girls, went to college, <laughs> decided I would be social, learn how to drink beer, become an artist, put it all behind me. Well, flash forward to around 2004, 2005, right around the time I was turning 40, I was visiting my parents and found in their basement what I call the blue cooler. And the blue cooler was an old Coleman camping cooler and I wondered what, I was looking for something else. I opened it up, wondering what this was, and lo and behold, all of my Dungeons and Dragons stuff that I had thought I had lost, or I thought had gotten forgotten or disappeared, was there. All my dice, all my maps, all, my, all the character sheets, all the stuff. Notebooks full of this kind of thing. Um, and sure enough, there was a photo of me during the era, and that's me on the left. And these are the guys I played D&D with, most of whom I'd lost touch with. And I went and did sort of a, a an exercise in personal archaeology, and I literally dove into that box and started to look at all this stuff and think about, well, what was this game about? Why was I so into it? And who was this kid who played it? And as I sort of delved into it, I realized that this was a great game. I love this game. Why did I, why did I put this game behind me? You know, what was I thinking? And then I started to think a little bit more seriously about it, and I started to study more and more, what I was, and I kind of looked at all the numbers of maps and dungeons I designed, I thought, this kid was completely checked out. I mean, what, what was wrong with him? And I really started to wonder that this, this was actually possibly had had a sort of negative effect on my life. And as I mentioned before, the Lord of the Rings movies had come out. Um, sorry, I'm going to skip ahead here. The Lord of the Rings movies had come out. The reason I showed you those other images, by the way, is because my, my designer at the publisher made this lovely collage 
of the D&D maps that I did when I was like 12 or 14 and put them on the inside end papers. The other thing that happened was when the Lord of the Rings movies came out, and I was, this is in 2001, 2000, 2003, I was living in France at the time, and um, completely got sucked into watching the movies. Watched them again and again, would go to the fan sites, reread the trilogy, and in Paris at the time, in France and all through Europe, they were selling these, you know these Kinder Eggs? These chocolate Kinder Eggs? Well, you buy them and inside is a toy surprise. Well, they had this Les Seigneurs des Anneaux, their Lord of the Rings promotion, and my goal was to try to collect the entire fellowship. Well, I only got as far as Galadriel, Frodo, Mary, Pippin, Sam, and Legolas. I never really got Aragorn, uh, Gandalf, or Gimli. But nonetheless, I found myself weirdly obsessed with trying to get them all. And I thought, this is really strange. Here I am, a 40-year-old guy. I'm supposed to be you know, adult and grown up. Um, and around that same time, I started to do some, some articles about the phenomenon of Lord of the Rings and Tolkien. And it really started to get me thinking a lot about what had happened in the culture between the 1970s and 1980s when I played D&D, and there were, I guess, the other game we were really into were coin-operated video games, again, very rudimentary, and uh, we even played some of the early MUDs uh, on the server at University of New Hampshire where a friend, of my, uh, a friend of my dad taught. But basically, those were games that were pretty much on the, on the fringes. A few people played them. They were kind of fad cult status. In our high school, we were pretty much ignored. But they had an association with, if you recall, for those of you who are old enough, there was certain groups of people who felt that these games were a gateway to summoning demons from the ninth plane of hell or whatever it was. Some of the same kinds of concerns that people have today about online gaming, in the sense that it's going to rot your children's brains, it's going to turn you into an antisocial person, it's going to, um, uh, you'll become addicted to them, and bad things will happen to you. Um, but of, as I was saying earlier, you know, now, of course, all these things are incredibly acceptable. And we, know, we now know that games like World of Warcraft have something upwards of, I think, 13 million players at the moment uh, who are subscribed. Um, Harry Potter, as you know, enormously popular. Children, adults, grandchildren, everyone's reading them. What is happening in our culture that this particular material, this fantasy, quote unquote, escapist material, is suddenly so popular? What are we all escaping from? If, we're, if, it, is, if it is indeed esca escapism. And if it isn't escapism, then what is it? Why are, we, why are we attracted to this stuff? What role is it serving in our society? And in particular, people who didn't stop playing, like unlike me, people who continued to play D&D or became involved in other kinds of fandom activity and fantasy activity, what, what was their story? What attracted them to it? So I went off on this quest to sort of think about, instead of just me hypothesizing sort of in, in midair, to talk to people directly. So, I began to interview people and sort of go around the world. What's the next one here? And the number one thing that I, um, the only bearded elf in Middle Earth. <laughs> um, the, the, one, the one thing that I encountered, as I mentioned earlier, was the geek cred. And the second issue was the negative stereotyping of gaming and gamers. Because this is, again, something that people who are into gaming, who, particularly if they're in their 30s or 40s, have been playing for 10, 20 years, they are, I think, for the most part, fairly well adjusted and accept, uh, have integrated this into their lives in a positive way and don't really care what people think of them. But as we all know, whether you say geek, nerd, freak, dork, dweeb, brain, I mean, what are some of the stereotypes that people have for people who play games in particular, just in the media? Pardon? Male. Male, okay. Virgins, right, okay. Pardon? Violent, very good, right, the whole Columbine thing, okay. Anything else? 
Parents' basement, that's a key one. This actually, this actually came up at, sorry? Smelly. Smelly, right, okay. The, the parents' basement thing came up in the, I don't know if you remember, in the uh, presidential campaign. There was a blogger for the McCain campaign that accused, it was a sort of a strange connection. It was the editors of the Daily Cost or the editors of the New York Times were somehow affiliated with basement-dwelling people who were ranting and playing D&D games into the ether or something. I forget the exact quote. Um, and, of course, this campaign blogger made a huge mistake by pissing off, you know, most of the potential, you know, supporters that might have existed in the McCain campaign. And immediately this, this, this blogger re re replied with an apology saying, you know, the, the McCain campaign is dedicated to increasing the strength, intelligence, dexterity, wisdom, constitution, and charisma of every, you know, American or something like that. So they kind of covered their, covered themselves. But nonetheless, these, these kinds of stereotypes about who, who gamers are, uh, and the dangers of gaming is something that is still, despite the fact that I think we would all agree most people either in this room play or know people who play um, any kind of game, an online game, whether it's uh, a fantasy-based game, a science fiction-based game, or even the Wii or some of the Xbox games, PlayStation games that aren't necessarily um, online, you can imagine um, uh, the, the sense I've gotten anyway that the people who, who are playing these games there's still a tiny bit of a chip on their shoulder, and they want to make sure that you know, these stereotypes disappear. And I was fortunate enough in my research and talking to people, for the most part, I would say 90% of the people I talked to seemed to me, in, anyway, completely um, uh, had integrated gaming in a positive way, had not let it overtake their lives, although I will get to another person I talked to later who you know, was definitely an addict. But the, the point being that the stereotypes are still out there despite the fact that the, um, uh, the large majority of people are, are, are accepting it. So the first place I went on my quest was um, I figured I would start with the father of all this, who, in my view, Tolkien was the sort of person who helped repopularize fantasy and sort of heroic um, medieval-style uh, uh, narrative for the modern age. So here was a, the original geek uh, who was you know, a teacher at Oxford who studied languages and really was into languages and decided he would create a world where these languages might be spoken and hence started creating characters, hence The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And I remember specifically going to his town in Oxford, um, where he'd lived for most of his life, and visiting all of his homes. Uh, he lived in about six different places, and wandering around. And if you've been to Oxford, it's a beautiful Gothic medieval uh, town, and you can almost imagine how he would have been inspired to, to, to think about uh, magical lands in Moria and um, uh, Mordor, based just on the architecture there. And I remember one night sitting up in my um, hotel room and thinking about, well, what are the reasons that people might be attracted to this? And I'm sorry this is not quite legible at the back of the room. But is it just we want to escape? Okay, is there something that, about modern day and modern life that is just too hard to handle? So therefore, we need to kind of give ourselves a mental holiday, whether it's emotional, marital, societal, the economic downturn, whatever it is, okay? Is there a sense that we're feeling not empowered? And is there something about these games that are giving us a sense of power or a sense of, a sense of uh, mastery? Um, do, we, do we desire to feel heroic or feel part of a larger narrative that in our modern 21st century lives we, we are unable to uh, have uh, or even immortality? Is it simply that we just have too much leisure time in our hands? And, and uh, I don't know why I have that quote there about my, this is a transcript of this little thing I scribbled late at night, so it doesn't make a lot of sense. but. Uh, the Peasant Farmer, you know, Monty Python, Autonomous Collective, um, 
is there a sense that we are hardwired to play act some kind of primal human struggles? Uh, or is it a kind of sense that we don't have any rites of passage left in our culture? Okay? Are we missing the sense, you know, what, what are our rites of passage now? You get your driver's license, you, have, you lose your virginity, you maybe you leave home and go to college, uh, you get drunk for the first time, but maybe not the same kinds of rites of passage as that we would have had, uh, you know, 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. Um, is there something about fantasy worlds in particular that offer a, a very clear black and white worldview, where all of the villains have red glowing eyes and horns and all the good guys have uh, white robes? Uh, is there something about that that we find it compelling? Um, number eight is, you know, is there a sense that we're losing our connection to nature and to the way we used to think about nature and magical thinking? You know, back when we all were farmers and spent most of our days outdoors, we had strong connection to the woods, strong connection to the fields, to the seasons, to the elements, and we started to think about fairies and elves and magical beings because we were outdoors a lot, uh, which is related to, you know, industrialization. Uh, number nine, not so, okay. And then, is there, and then is there a sense of just regression? Okay, do we need to somehow relive our childhood and play games? Is there something about modern adulthood that's depriving us of this? You know, do we all have inner children that are under, unfed, un, undernourished? Do our inner children need a spanking? You know, what's the, what is it? Um, and then I'd written, you know, at the bottom, regress to childhood, relive childhood, and I said, no, 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 it's about play cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians, okay? There's a sense of wanting to reenact these sort of myths, whether it's cops and robbers in, in American culture uh, or something based in Europe. And then at the end I wrote, this is not me, okay? So even early on in this sort of quest of mine, I had the sense that I was not willing to accept the fact that this is a part of my past because I had put this behind me and found my engagement in Dungeons and Dragons to a certain extent something to be somewhat ashamed of. So the first guy I talked to was I went to a Tolkien Society meeting. Now the Tolkien Society is a quasi-scholarly, uh, academic, uh, amateur, not affiliated with any university, um, uh, Tolkien interest group. They have conferences and they hold conventions and talk about all things Tolkien. And I met this guy named Mark Eggington. And Mark Eggington is a uh, former um, uh, British infantryman. He fought in, uh, I think it was the Falcons War. He had been a member of the Tolkien Society for 20 odd years, and he sent me this photo of himself later. This, he, this is him down in his orc, what he calls the orc cave. The orc cave is his, the basement in the house where he lives, and it's full of all of his, um, he's collected every single edition of Lord of the Rings. He has it in 27 translations, and he has collected prop swords, and these things have been reproduced that are for sale, various things from the, from the movies. He has an incredible collection of stuff. And I, I sat there and talked to this guy who was at the Tolkien Society meeting. We were having this big banquet. And this is what he, what he said, and I'm going to just sort of sprinkle into my talk a couple quotes from the book. So this is from the third chapter. I can guarantee this lady here has walked the forests of Middle Earth, Mark Eggington told me, gesturing with his chin toward a woman in a long velvet gown. I've been to Middle Earth. It's everywhere. On his right hand, Eggington wore a gold ring of power. In his other hand, he gripped a pint of beer. Shooting an eye in my direction, Eggington continued, I go into that world very often. Then he caught himself adding, but I'm not devoid of reality. My feet are planted firmly in the real world. So he was someone who, to a certain extent, found solace, found 
the worldview and the ideas that Tolkien had, has created in his, in his books and in his whole legend, legendarium a sort of very comforting place to go into. And he went on to say that escapism is an essential part of life. If you are stuck within a realm of reality that is unpleasant, you will escape to the world within. And he talked about how Middle Earth and the real world are kind of, real world are kind of mirrored in each other. He had this very interesting con concept of um, within the world as we stride it, there is a world that Tolkien created that is mirrored by the real world we all know and live in. So that was an interesting idea for me that I hadn't, it was actually the first person I talked to who was really quite articulate about his reasons for why he'd been so devoted to Tolkien and so interested in Tolkien's works for all these years, um, why the movies, uh, the experience of watching the movies wasn't actually necessarily, uh, wasn't necessarily a conflicting experience, but he, he appreciated the movies in the same way he appreciated the books, uh, but in different ways. Although it was interesting because one of the things I noticed when I was first beginning to research this was that people who had been reading Tolkien for all these years had a somewhat adversarial relationship with the new fans who had only heard about Tolkien through the Lord of the Rings movies, had never read the books, right? So that was sort of an interesting little infighting in the Tolkien community. Um, anyone know? Yeah? Gary, it is Gary. Gary Gygax, okay? So this is the co-founder of, of um, the game Dungeons & Dragons. And in a later chapter, I attempted to go play D&D with him and talk to him and get him to sort of, if Tolkien is sort of the grandfather of fantasy as, as a genre, Gygax is sort of the father of fantasy role-playing games. He's the guy who really helped invent it. Everything that we play today that has anything with a role-playing game from World of Warcraft backwards, in a large part, is, is due to the foundation that, that Tolkien and Gygax um, uh, created. So I went off to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, where he lived. It was a small gaming convention there. Uh, unfortunately, I arrived about two months too late. He had died. This is a year and a half ago. Interestingly enough, an aneurysm killed him. Um, interesting, personally. Maybe not to you, but... <laughs> um, now, one of the other places that I was curious about because I had also been tempted. Who was I speaking with? You, John, from the bookstore, about the Society for Creative Anachronism, which is a medieval reenactment group that, which was founded in the 60s in Berkeley, California, of course. Um, it had, um, has still been around and has still been growing and is still quite popular. And every year in Western Pennsylvania, there's an event called the Pensick War. People heard of that, anyone? Some people have, okay. So it's a gathering of about 12 to 14,000 people who are all members of the Society for Creative Anachronism. The rules are you must attend in costume, and it's a camping event. So people camp, camp in this gigantic campground about an hour outside of Pittsburgh. And the main activity is these incredible field battles, which involve between 1,000 and 2,000, 3,000 people at a time. And everyone dresses in, if not exactly period armor, very close to it. And instead of using actual swords with edges, they use um, rattan or bamboo or wood. So it's still full force combat, but you can't actually get killed. And I was thinking about this in terms of my own, um, what I had learned from Dungeons and Dragons as a game and what I, had, what, I, what I had absorbed almost by osmosis, by reading all the rules and reading all of the uh, descriptions of weapons and creatures. And it, it's sort of this whole body of knowledge that you absorb. And 
other than being fascinated by this as a cultural phenomenon, I really was curious to talk to people to find out well, what, what drove them to you know, go to this expense. They can spend up to ten or $20,000 on some of these suits of armor. Uh, why, would they, why would they do this? And why would they uh, take the two best weeks of their summer vacation <laughs> and do this? Um, so um, every time I would go sort of in undercover, I mean, I wasn't really undercover, but I would, uh, uh, I would arrive and, and talk to people. And I met this guy named David Randrup, who's a um, school teacher from Los Angeles. He teaches eighth grade history. And he um, talked to me about how in his life, in his world, religion and just sort of the culture in general had not provided him with what he felt like was a framework for good behavior, sort of an ethical or a moral kind of guidepost. Um, for whatever reasons, uh, organized religion turned him off, had a bad experience with it or regarding his parents. I'm not sure exactly the exact story, but he, he didn't really have any belief in God. And he actually was quite attracted to the medieval era, the medieval period, and he would go to, he really wanted to sort of go to cathedrals in Europe and try to see if he could sit there in, 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 in a cathedral and kind of absorb the aura to see if he would have spiritual um, experience there. And he didn't. So he's kind of disenchanted. And he was also a D&D player back in the day, and sometime in high school he got connected with the Society for Creative Anachronism. And he is a knight in this order, so it's, it's, a, it's an organization that has a life outside of the times when they're actually getting dressed up in costume. And you do certain things and you perform service, and after a number of years you are rewarded with various ranks. And after a certain period of time you can become a knight in, um, in combat if that's your, your choice. And he talked about um, how the experience of being knighted was sort of akin to being married. With this came with this incredible weight of responsibility. He says, once you're knighted, it's for life. I also have a felt a heavy, heavy burden of having to live up to what others thought a knight ought to be. And I talked to him about this theory I had that maybe one reason why we're attracted to some of these games, particularly the ones where you get to dress up and, and physically uh, engage in combat, is because, as I was saying earlier, if we're hardwired to solve our problems or to, to, to confront each other with physical violent means, but of course in 21st century society we are not allowed to do this, right? If you have a dispute with your boss or with your best friend or your sister or your brother, you are not allowed to be like, all right, let's just go out in the backyard with our battle axes and see what happens, you know, and then... You know, but back in the day, this was something that we would have we would have probably done. That would have been our first choice. Diplomacy and and uh, discussion would have been probably the last. Well, and likewise, if you have a dispute with your boss, and it would be nice to sort of say, let's take our staple guns or our staplers and you know do some kind of combat to decide how this is going to turn out. Well, this of course isn't the case. But we have um, there's a sociologist named Norbert Elias who has a theory about why this is so difficult for us humans in the 21st century to, to process. He calls it the control to decontrolling of emotion. And so while we've been suppressing all this sort of in our psyches and in our core beings, we have to allow as a culture opportunities to act out and to be um, sort of blow off steam. Well, we all know that in our culture, sports culture is incredibly, A, violent in most cases, most of the sports, and the fan activity is incredibly, um, uh, there's a sense of devotion and you know, you can, you can dress up, paint your face red, white, and blue, 
take off your shirt, scream and holler, get drunk, uh, go to uh, uh, tailgating, follow your team around for months, wherever they're going. And interestingly enough, uh, and this is the parallel I draw in my book, because sports, sports culture in our country is so accepted, anything that's a fantasy sport is sort of normal, right? If you, have, if you know people in your, in your lives who play fantasy baseball or fantasy football, people who memorize statistics about their favorite players and all the stats of quarterbacks and that sort of thing, like that sort of, you might think the person has sort of taken sports fanaticism a little too far, but basically that's acceptable in our culture. Well, if you spend that amount of time and, and, and mental energy memorizing you know, all the monsters in the monster manual or something like that, that's kind of like, mm, there's something wrong with you. Um, but anyways, uh, he, I've lost my train of thought. So he talked about how this was a kind of activity that allows, this is the, the sociologist Elias, allows us to, in a safe way, and in a acceptable way, make um, physical these kinds of suppressed desires. Um, but not only that, is this sense that there is something in the sort of culture of the Society for Creative Anachronism that he is allowed to apply to his day-to-day -day life. So, as he says, um, when faced with a thorny problem, like a conflict at his school, Randrup asked himself, how would a medieval noble face this problem? Quote, while it may be tempting to wreak havoc with a broadsword, <laughs> the ideal is to face the situation with courage, mete out justice while expecting it from others, show mercy as you'd expect others to, to be generous without regret, to have faith in humanity, show nobility and, and adversity, have hope for the future, and have the strength to do it all over again the next time. So here's a guy who's transposed his game world ethical system and trying to make it apply to his real world life, which I thought was fascinating and you know, actually a, a very nice, healthy kind of way to uh, take lessons learned in the game world. Um, now, jumping to, over to France, the other project that I found uh, to be pretty amazing that is less to do with fantasy and more to do with, let's just say, medieval, is this um, project that's happening outside of Paris in Burgundy, about three hours east of Paris. It's called Guédelon, and it's a castle building project. There are about 30 to 40 um, stonemasons and uh, uh, lumbers, lumber, lumberjacks, carpenters, basket makers, tile makers, who have been engaged in a project which is funded partly by the French government and also now by admission fees. If you go to visit it, you pay some money and you can watch them to build a castle using only medieval technology. So they are engaged in this kind of shared medieval, almost like a reverie, a kind of, it's not as if they're, 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 they're completely denying the modern world because of course at the end of the day they get, in there to, get into their Renaults and they drive home, right, and hang out with the wife and kids. But every morning they come to the work site, they get out of their cars, they have a little espresso, and they put on their tunics, and off they go to work. Um, and the guy who's the mastermind behind this project decided that you know, he didn't know how castles were built, so the only way he knew how you could build one would be to do it the way they did it back then. So it's sort of a work in progress. This is actually fresh, uh, it's in French, so I can't, um, well, I could attempt to translate it, but the pictures are the main thing. This is their latest newsletter that I got in the mail just a couple weeks ago, showing sort of where they are at. And they are projecting this is gonna take between 25 and 30 years to complete. So there are no power tools, no hydraulics, no electricity. Um, the only concessions to modernity that they allow in this, in this particular project are walkie-talkies, so they can communicate because it's a pretty large work site. 
Um, they do wear hard hats in certain zones, and they wear safety goggles because if you are building a stone in this wall here, you have to go to the quarry, and there are actually people who have different jobs, and there's a guy whose job is to split the rock with a chisel and a, and a crowbar, and then he brings it to this other person, and he carves it into a smaller piece, and then it goes to the next person, and they mix the mud, mortar, and then they put it in place. So there's a sense in, in um, this project where they are um, almost like trying to recapture a lost past that never really would have existed in a way. Um, and they are sort of sharing in this shared idea of what the medieval era would have looked like, felt like. People who work on the site have been there for, many of them have been working there for five or 10 years now. And their jobs are just to make a stone, make 10 tiles today, make two baskets, whatever their, um, whatever their job is. This is sort of what it looks like. This is about a year old, this particular photo. Um, and the other thing that I found in, in my research about this is the overarching um, reason or the overarching uh, uh, connection for a lot of these groups of people, whether it's, and we'll get to online gaming in a second, is a sense of community. And I think that gaming and fantasy provides a sense of community. Not only does it build new communities, but it provides a place for people who do not feel like they have a place to go. So if you're playing uh, a game like D&D, well, there's your group of people. You play with them every week. It's just like poker night. Um, if you're inter involved in this project, it's a group project. In a way, it's having uh, uh, creating a sense of camaraderie and fellowship that, to a certain extent, I think that we've lost because we aren't necessarily telling stories to each other like we used to. We aren't necessarily gathering around the campfire at night like we used to. We aren't necessarily making our own music and our own song and writing our own, our own stories about ourselves. So much of what we are doing in life has this mediation through whatever media. We are being given entertainment to, to, to digest, to consume. Um, and here's something that's being created, uh, whether it's a castle or whether it's a Dungeons and Dragons game for that night. It is something that's being created amongst, amongst people, amongst friends. Um, I mentioned earlier Harry Potter. And this is a local band uh, called Harry and the Potters. People probably know them. Uh, two brothers who live in the suburbs of Boston, and they're largely credited with founding the, um, the genre of music known as wizard rock. And I wanted to just briefly touch on this because there's an element of role playing and costume play that has become, you'll even see it in, in non, sort of non-fantasy or gaming events. People just sort of will walk around in costume every now and then. You'll see it. I'm sure it happens at MIT all the time. These two brothers have an interesting idea. They're not necessarily playing Harry Potter, but they are playing Harry Potter. If Harry Potter were a rock star, and if Harry Potter could exist both as year four and year seven, because this is the older brother and this is the younger brother, and if they were, it's this odd sort of conception that they are part of this fictional universe, and yet they also can play music and rock out. What would their song sound like? Um, and what I found fascinating about this is these guys are sort of probably, they seem to fall under the sort of most uh, rudimentary geek stereotype. They're kind of shy and introverted. You know, uh, I think actually the older brother went to MIT, was a chemical engineer. The younger brother's in Clark right now studying something else. Their dad's a scientist. And yet, when they get on stage, they transform themselves into a 
a whole other role for themselves. This kind of like the rock star nerd. Um, and the other aspect that I mentioned earlier with the live action role playing, <clears throat> this is a guy who I met in um, Atlanta who plays in a, a live action role playing game um, called The Forest of Doors. It's the name of their particular uh, game. There's a million of these different games, but they have their own set of rules and their own set of sort of what their world is like. And they have a um, uh, creation myth for this place, which is basically that all these people from these different eight different worlds walked through these magical portals and appeared in the game. And they spend the weekend sort of talking to each other and figuring out where they came from, who they are, and how to sort of form a society. Well, this is a character known as Jack the Spear. And he's sort of an elfish, sort of uh, mischievous character who plays music. And I talked to this guy. His name is Chris Jones. And uh, we, we talk more and more about his background as a gamer. And it turns out that he is uh, a war veteran from Iraq and Afghanistan and flew those big transport planes, C's, what are they called, C-20, C-37s, whatever they're called, and had seen a lot of combat. Didn't actually take part in it, but had seen a lot of combat. And his, he was involved in uh, ferrying supplies to and from medical uh, uh, units. So he saw a lot of action and saw a lot of his friends die. And I thought, well, this is bizarre. Here's a guy who's in the military, who's seen a lot of combat. What on earth would compel him to run around in the woods with a foam rubber sword and play combat when he's had enough combat in his real world. Like you would think someone who's been through that kind of experience would be, would have had enough of this, you know. But he had some really interesting um, things to say in response to that. And one of the, one of the things that I, I thought was a kind of interesting, um, let's see if I can find the quote here, an interesting, um, uh, observation was he was, I was asking him about play violence versus real violence. Because of course in the LARP, the live action role playing game, there's a system for combat. Sometimes you just use paper, rock, and scissors or you shoot uh, airsoft guns or something or water balloons. In other cases, you, you do have some kind of weapon. And I asked him about the difference between play action and play, play violence and real violence. And he said, I know when people make heroic sacrifices or suicide or anything like that in game that they have very little concept of what they're doing. In games, there's the luxury of calling hold. Everybody freezes. Nothing like the real thing. If you're asking if real combat made me a better fighter in game, not at all. The two are totally different. I may have a better concept of logistics or even a better idea of other people's tactics, but I keep the two separate in my head. Um, and I asked him if he had you know, seen any people die in his unit, and he said, that several of his friends had died and several of them were still dying. Um, and interestingly enough, he also was very much into online games and played uh, Diablo, played World of Warcraft, uh, played with his brother, played with his father. And I found, interestingly enough, a whole subculture of military veterans who are very into online gaming in particular. And there was a couple who I, um, let me skip through to the next, we'll get to Frodo later maybe. So you all recognize this. This is a, a screenshot from World of Warcraft. There was a couple that I interviewed who were a mother, and a mother and a son. And the son was just about to be shipped off to Iraq. Or was in Iraq. He was on like, his third tour of duty. And the two of them used the game as a, meth, a, a, way, of, a, a way of communicating. So while he was overseas, the two of them could still interact in the game world. And in the real world, the mother was the mother and he was the son, I think. 
she was quite she was quite young for a mother. He was 20 or something, and she's about 40, 41. But in the game world, the son was the teacher and the mother was the student. Um, and her job was also to level up his character when he couldn't play, so that when he came back to you know had some time off and could get back online and play the game, whether it was back home or whether it was still over in Iraq, he would not be left behind by the fellow people in his gaming guild. Um, and to me, I found that um, kind of fascinating. Uh, this is a screenshot from the Lord of the Rings online game, which is produced right here in um, Boston, in the suburbs, uh, out in uh, Westwood. I think I have another shot from that. I'm not sure. Oh, that's another one. Hold on, I'll get to this one in a second. Um, the other person I interviewed was a... Um, was a mother who was in her 50s and lived, lives in New Haven. She's college educated, has a PhD in comparative literature. She studied Greek mythology. She started a school. Both of her and her, her spouse are highly educated um, academics and they have a young daughter. One weekend the mother went away. Sorry, the father and the, and the daughter went away to go ski on a ski trip. And the daughter, who was about 14, said, well, mom, I'm going to just leave you my... Uh, my World of Warcraft account open. Here's the password. You know, maybe you'll enjoy playing this while we're gone. Mommy and dad are gone. They go away, and uh, in the book, her name is Phyllis. Phyllis um, plays the game, and she can't stop playing the game. She had never gamed before, had been watching her daughter play a little bit, was curious, and she got hooked. Um, and she started to experience a different side of her personality that she felt, as I got to know her better, given her situation as someone in her mid-50s and having a bit of a midlife crisis. As it turned out, things with her marriage were not going particularly well. As it turned out, the school that she'd founded was just being clo had been closed for financial reasons. Her daughter was growing up, going to be leaving the nest pretty soon. And this woman was having you know, a hard time figuring out what to do next and was feeling, I think, fairly powerless. And she, as she says, the game, after having played it for about a year straight, was actually changing the way she felt like she interacted with people in the real world. It was making her more confident, making her more sort of outspoken. Um, I am, as she said to me, I am less patient. I am more forthright. I blurt out what I think. It's about fucking time. It's like breathing for the first time. So here's a woman who found a real sense of... Um, uh, empowerment and in a way being able to express her um, self in a way that she never expected. The other thing I thought was interesting, which I never would have thought, and perhaps this is to go to this, <laughs> this slide, which is the Army's new recruiting tool called the Virtual Army Experience, which they've been touring around to um, state fairs and uh, sort of places where lots of young people hang out. Uh, you sign up and can play. The only thing you need to do is give the Army your um, personal information, of course, <laughs> so they can recruit you. And there is a game now uh, where you sit in this Humvee and you are given um, you know, very lifelike uh, weapons. And you have the screen in front of you. It's a simulated experience of, I forget which particular country, it's Iraq or Afghanistan, or maybe it's not named. And you know, um, perhaps young people are persuaded to think that um, this might be a fun thing to do in the real world, um, which is another story entirely. And I don't want to get into too much about that. But one of the things that this woman uh, 
uh, Judith told me was that she felt the actual playing of the game was improving her reaction time, uh, improved her ability to, um, uh, to drive, <laughs> to be, become a better writer. Um, this is what she says uh, in the book. Uh, Priestley felt the game had made her a better person. All that rapid fire picking off of wolves, quill bores, and trogs had sharpened her reflexes, quickened her reaction time, and heightened her senses. She claimed gaming had made her a better driver. The windshield became a rectangular viewfinder into a world of obstacles and foes. I keep expecting something to jump out and kill me, she told me. Wow, she also said, had turned her into a more skilled writer. Wow was a literary and textual experience for Priestley, and she was beginning to write fiction affected by her experiences. Um, dealing with, as she says, self-proclaimed pricks in the game makes my, te my text crisp. Assertiveness training through MMOs. It's freed me up to say what I want to say. Um, and I found that to be the case with so many people who talked about why the game was not just sort of fun. I mean, I think we can all agree that people play games probably because ultimately they're fun. And there's something um, that's just sort of joyous in that. But that we're, people were getting, particularly from the online games, because they're probably the most popular and the most immersive of all the, the current manifestations of, of what I talk about in the book. Um, there's a guy who, uh, I'll briefly, because I'm just about running out of time, I don't want to go much further, but there's a guy who, uh, another uh, Iraq war, uh, uh, soon-to-be Iraq war uh, combatant who was being shipped off about a month or two after I talked to him, who was a, a medic, who was going to be a medic with the North Carolina um, uh, National Guard. Um, and he talked about how in the game world, I think he plays uh, Ultima Online, that he felt like by playing these characters, these avatars, he was allowed to participate in a combat or warlike experience that in the real world he would never be allowed to have. Okay? So, as he says, um, in real life, he didn't have that pleasure. In Iraq, if he had to bear arms against someone, his foe remained nameless. Chances are I will never see them eye to eye, and it will be over only fast enough for me to think about when I ask for forgiveness from whatever powers may be later. So in real life, justice was rarely served. Murderers walked. Terrorists walked into public places, blew people up, children died. Um, it was all very murky. Um, but playing MMOs allowed Hunt, this guy's name is Levi Hunt, to restore balance to the cosmos. In the virtual community, Hunt became Geist Prophet, who could avenge a loss, punish a criminal, and deliver retribution. His avatar stood for these values. If someone wants to hurt my friends, he said, strangers or myself, I have all the powers in that world at my disposal to stop that from happening. Um, and he felt like his avatar embodied humility, honor, compassion, valor, justice, spirituality, sacrifice, and honesty. Um, and, of course, he had no real worries of real death because in the game world, there's always resurrection, right? <laughs> uh, in most game worlds, anyway. Um, let me just scoot ahead here. I think we're near the end. So my quest ends in um, New Zealand. And I'll, I'll open it up to questions in a second. But just to wrap up 
where the book goes. So eventually I decided that the only way for me to sort of fully get to the bottom of this uh, interest I have. So I bring my little Kinder Egg figures with me. <laughs> and this is how ridiculous uh, I uh, became. Um, had a guidebook with me, which was uh, listed every single movie location where they shot Lord of the Rings with GPS coordinates. And you could basically go to the exact scene where such and such Frodo and Sam and Gollum are in the thing on their way to Mordor. So this is uh, in Tongariro National Park, which is in the North Island. In the back is Mount Ruapehu, which is one of the volcanic peaks that was used for filming of the Mordor scenes and uh, Mount Doom and so forth. And I found myself running around like an idiot, um, or not an idiot, uh, filming, taking pictures of my little figurines in different locations. And I had this very laptop computer with me, and I brought my 12 CD extended DVD edition of the movie trilogy with me. And so I would play the movie scene in the location where the movie happened, and then I was shooting that with another, talk about postmodern, shooting that with another camera. <laughs> anyway, um, so my, my sort of arc in terms of my own interest was try to get sort of go out, explore into the world the reasons why this stuff was popular and had meaning for other people, and then try to return to myself. And at the very end, I was very fortunate in that I was allowed to spend some time at the archives where Tolkien's manuscripts for Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit are kept. Does anyone know where they are? Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Believe it or not. At Marquette University, they managed to purchase these. And I spent a couple hours with some of the manuscripts and got a real insight into Tolkien's creative mind as he was doodling and writing stories and making pictures of what his world wanted to look like. Um, and, well, you'll have to read the book to see how it really ends, but um, that's essentially the, the, the arc that I want to take you on. And I wanted to leave time for questions. And this is me storming the castle in Somerville. Um, <laughs> if you've been to uh, Union Square, you might have noticed this. Um, and uh, there's a lot more I could say, but I've already been talking for almost an hour, and I w would much rather just open it up to questions and have you share anything that you want to mention or talk about or go from there. So. Well, first, thanks. I was wondering if that mic really works, but I guess that's just for the recording purposes. Right, okay. Um, so I'm Hillary, and I'm a second year in the CMS program. Yep. And um, supposedly doing my thesis on gender and gaming. And, yes. Um, very broad, but so I wanted to ask you to push you a little bit more on where the women are sure. at. Sure. And where you found it, and I think there's a perception that there's not many women in this area, but there's probably a ton. There are, yeah. And sort of seen as a macho culture, but there is a big space for women. So can you talk about either what you found or yep. what you I can talk about that in two ways. One is that you know, one, of the, one of the people I was able to talk to was an early game designer um, who worked for um, TSR, which is the company that Gygax founded who, that did Dungeons & Dragons and other games that were in different genres. There was a post-apocalyptic game called Gamma World, and he was the guy who came up with that game, which is one, one of my other favorite games. And he talked about how, in his experience, the boys wanted to kill the dragon, and the girls wanted to build a house and live with the dragon. And that was the essential difference he saw. It's not all that clear cut, but for the most part, 
at least traditionally, that was the way it was. And certainly when I played D&D, we had, women were scarce, let's put it that way. Um, but it turns out that, I was just reading a study about this not that long ago, that the, the, for online gaming anyway, when we say gaming, if you mean online gaming, it's about a 60-40 split. So it's about 60% men and 40% women. And more surprisingly than that, these researchers found that the female game player was on whole more dedicated, played more hours, and was more serious about it than, than the, their male counterparts. Um, I mean, I would say anecdotally, when I went to a convention like Gen Con, which is a gaming convention, but it's largely tabletop games that are more strategy-based with miniatures and maps and sort of whether World War II or medieval-themed, I would say the, the makeup was about 80-20, honestly, so it was mostly men. But at a convention like Dragon Con, which is a fantasy convention where, where I just was a couple weeks ago and where I was last year, um, it's pretty much 50-50. And I think it's because it's not that only that women are only into the dress-up things. I think there's an element of some of these organizations like the Society for Creator Anachronism that there's more to the organization than just going out and beating the crap out of people with swords. So there's other things to be able to, you know, there's service and there's um, classes you can take and there's heraldry and, you know, maybe traditionally more, you know, uh, I'll get in trouble for saying this, but traditionally things that were sort of more, more feminine um, because the combat did not appeal to everyone in that organization. But in terms of the online games, as far as they're concerned, my, you know, my finding was that it was, you know, fairly even and that some would argue that the females were, the women were more, were more kind of, um, uh, I think like I found in a, in a lot of fields, sort of more, more serious and more dedicated in, in, in ways that, would, that, that surprised me. And I made a point in the book to, I would say, skew it more towards women because I was more curious to hear their point of view. I think that the stereotype of the male gamer is already out there in the culture and I didn't really need to sort of dwell on that. Um, so does that help somewhat? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, the first thing I wanted to say was that, you know, part of the skew in some conventions may be that some conventions are more female-friendly than others, and in some you're more likely to, you know, get sexually harassed and so on. And I know that's one thing yeah, that makes me point. not go yep. to yep. gaming conventions right. like you were talking about, yep. um, despite being an inveterate gamer. Yep. Um, but I actually wanted to know, you seem to be making a point that was talking about, like, how people get into this stuff because it fulfills emotional needs that they can't have fulfilled elsewhere. And is that really your is that really your opinion on why people are into fantasy? Like, I mean, do you think that that's true for the average person? What do you mean by emotional needs? Well, you were talking about how people need to, you know, experience. You were talking about how people, like, maybe were finding a community that they couldn't find elsewhere because they were feeling cast out. Or you were yep. talking about, you know, people who were having uh, some kind of structure that they couldn't find elsewhere. Do you think that that's the average person's experience? Was that what you found? I mean, there was no, I would say there were. I just didn't want to like misinterpret what no, you were no, saying. No, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that the, the, what I was surprised by was the diversity of responses I got from people. It was never just one thing. So for some people it was clear that, you know, as I said at the beginning, that, that a game or, or reading a, a, a fantasy novel was, was clearly an escape. It was something that just was a sort of way to sort of ch check out for a little while. For others, they, they were really looking for meaning and looking for structure. Um, I think in, I could speak personally in terms of my interest in Dungeons and Dragons, it was something very compelling about being a kid who felt like his own world was spinning out of control and here was a game that had some rules, some probabilities. It, 
of course, it was all decided by the roll of the 20 said die in the end, right? In the end, this was, this was the thing that decided your fate. It was still very random. But at least I knew that if I wanted to kill the orc and I was a fourth level thief with a dagger, I knew exactly what I needed to hit that at that moment. And I knew exactly, you know, it was very, it was predictable, even though I, I, I could guess what I needed to do. And there was some comfort in knowing what those, those rules were. And in a way, that's what we're doing as teenagers anyway, aren't we? We're, we're testing limits and we're, we're, we're kind of um, uh, learning how the adult world works. And for me personally, and this is sort of my pop psychology version of my own self, the lesson I learned was that you can't really count on anything and things can get turned upside down at any moment. Um, I do strongly believe that there is a sense of tr almost a tribal um, communal experience that we don't have anymore. That was small bands of people running around doing stuff together, killing things, running through the woods, you know, slaying the deer, uh, drinking the blood, whatever, you know, that whole thing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, anyway, sort of a rambling answer to your question, but anyone else? Yeah. I have kind of a boring question about methodology. Um, yes. Because in our CMS program, we're at the stage of deciding on thesis topics and how we're going to approach that. And it sounds like you have a lot of, you did a lot of research and found a lot of case studies or examples. And I'm interested in, did did you plan, how, what, what was your process in planning that and did you intend for it to be really quantitative and? Not at all, okay. no, I mean, yeah, just so you're clear, I mean, it was definitely not intended to be worker scholarship or hold up to any kind of scientific standards, which doesn't help you, unfortunately, but, you know, as a journalist, we have a different set of standards that we bring to our work, which has more to do with, I think, fairness and truth to what I believe the experience was and not misrepresenting. But to be honest with you, I was more inclined to go with the stories that were more interesting, because it's narrative, and because also I'm a character in the book. I mean, it is nonfiction. I didn't make anything up, but I'm a character in the book, and my primary job is to tell a story that is interesting to read, hopefully, that also, along the way, elucidates some interesting ideas, But hopefully. how did you find those stories, whether online or in person? Everywhere. You know, once I started working on this book, I had friends come out of the woodwork. Number one, I had friends come out of the woodwork saying, oh, I used to play D&D, &D, or oh, I bet you would have known this, and you know, in a way, it was like me talking about me doing this, liberated other people in my life to admit that this is something they used to do. Um, but more importantly, I was, I just, you know, in some cases I, w I just wandered. Like I went to Dragon Con and just spent a whole weekend wandering around and tried to interact with people who were interesting. In the case of like that live action role playing game, I specifically sought out a game that I knew was small and seemed to be, uh, had not been covered before in the media and also ones that allowed me to be part of them. Because that was the other criteria was that were they gonna allow me to participate and to observe and not be weirded out by that or, or, or be try to control what I was gonna say about them. I made it very clear to them that this is, this is, an, this is a work of journalism and you, you don't get veto power over what I write because that, you know, journalists get themselves into trouble when they do that, you know, uh, when they give final cut <laughs> to someone else other than their editor. Um, the research in terms of studies and the, the statistics and things, which I don't tend to have a very good brain for, I mean, I definitely spend a lot of time reading up about you know, what, are, what is the gender imbalance in gaming? What is, uh, what is the history of, of this particular, you know, where, where, did, where did these games come from? Um, but uh, in terms of, raw, you know, what would be helpful to you as a, uh, and you consider yourself a scientist, or this is more, what is the, is sociology? Like, what, what would this fall under in terms of, or just scholarship, just sort of scholarship? I guess general yeah. scholarship. Yeah. We're all very different. Yeah, oh, I know there's a variety of people here doing different things, so yeah. it's probably not one answer, but. You know, in the end, it's like the best story. 
And I knew, like, for example, there was a guy who, I, knew, I wanted to talk to one person who, who, who it said he was addicted to gaming, because that's a concern that people have about these games being addictive and what was his own story. And it took me, it was, sounds weird to say this, but it took me a while to find the right addict to talk to. Uh, and then when I did, it seemed like, you know, that was the right story for my book, which was representative of the kinds of issues I wanted to bring up. But a different journalist or a different writer would have maybe chosen a different one. But for me, it was sort of what was compelling and troubling and weird in a way, which, anyway. So for what it's worth, I would describe it, I mean, not to impose categories, but um, certainly journalism, but also a kind of um, auto-ethnography. I mean, it's a very interesting auto-ethnographic stance that um, keeps coming up. Because hmm. you're interrogating your own practice, you're part of the community, you keep yep. recontextualizing, and then at the same time, it's a kind of journalistic voice. It's, it's a really, it's an interesting voice. It's a, and, you know, that was, I mean, to follow up on what you just said, it was very difficult as a writer just to decide how much of me to put in it and how much of, how much of that would either just be totally boring or self-indulgent or how much it would be, would be of interest to other people. And at what point do I just need to shut up and let other people talk? And at what point can I interject myself into it? Um, and that was a huge uh, challenge for me, which I may or may not have gotten right. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so early on in your talk, you hinted at possible shifts in society or in culture that may have that may have spurred the popularity or yep. the acceptance yep. of these practices. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, and and um, I was also wondering how you felt about, you know, um, like around the 1900s, there were a lot of people who played with miniatures. Um, right. Especially in Europe, um, enacting battles yep. um, in their living rooms. And I was wondering how that connects to the practices of that, that you played. Okay. Well, I'll answer your second question first. It is true that some of the early war games that were played, there's a very famous book by, written by H.G. Wells, actually, called Little Wars, which was uh, rules for miniature combat. I believe it was, uh, it was Napoleonic or whatever, but the wars of that era. And you definitely could say that, in a way, he was the f sort of founding father of war gaming, from which people played war games all through the 20th century until the 1950s and 60s, and then they started to incorporate fantasy elements into it. So that um, is something that's been in the culture, I think, for a while. And to answer your second question, the first question, the, there's a lot of different factors, I think, that have contributed to geek culture being acceptable. I think part of it has to do with the success of certain entrepreneurs who have shown that they can, in the end, be the ones who win, <laughs> you know? Even if they're not winning the football game, they're winning, uh, you know, the stock market. Their companies are becoming successful. You know, it's the whole story of Apple and Bill Gates. I think that has been huge in the culture, and I think that that's made... I mean, America's always had this very strange division between wanting kids to do well in school and be academic, but just don't be too geeky. Like, be geeky to get good grades and get good SATs, but don't be so geeky that you're not a part of the popular group, right? Because we place a lot of value in our culture um, on popularity, and prowess on the athletic field, and sort of how social we are, and how many friends we have. And it's not something that typically has, um, the studious person has always often, of course, been the more introverted person. They're the ones who read, read books all the time, so they're maybe not as social. Um, the other factor I think that's happened is that we've become a much more specialized society, and people are specializing in things much earlier on than they used to, and they're less, less broad. So it's sort of okay now to say that, well, my specialty is, you know, I'm a film geek. I'm a wine geek. I'm a music geek. I'm a, you know, I mean, in a way the term geek is getting misused in ways that I don't think we would have intended it to, to be used. 
So this idea that you have this sort of quirky specialty in something is kind of becoming cool. It's not the kind of thing that would be uh, sort of doom you to the lower echelons of your particular social network that you live in. Um, and uh, I think I had a third reason for that, but I don't know. Do you have any ideas? I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of hypotheses about it. I think, you know, I think for the most part, we're, I think we're at a turning point. There's, there's a guy who, um, whose book I, I reviewed for the Globe, it's, it has this ridiculous title. It's called Nerds, Who They Are and Why We Need More of Them. And it's uh, basically, he's a child psychologist in, in Vermont, and he has a, a book about nerd culture and sort of how, and his belief is that in the same way that uh, civil rights in, for different races and gay rights were sort of the major civil rights issues of the 70s and 80s and 90s, that geek rights will be the next major uh, civil rights issue in the sense that we are going to now accept people no matter their interests, no matter their, their level of, of achievement academically, no matter their, you know, we're not going to, it's not cool to put down the smart kids anymore because, and it's going to be, I don't know how you could legislate that necessarily, but it's, it was an interesting idea, I thought, that this was sort of like the last marginalized group. Um, the last thing I would say about that is that one of the things I, ca I came across in writing the book is that the, the quote-unquote the geeks were the ones who had accepted all the misfit toys from early on. So a lot of the transgendered and transsexual and gay and lesbian people who were interested in cross-dressing and interested in um, trying out new roles, you know, behaving like a gay person because they couldn't be a gay person in the real world yet at the, at the time, that was the subculture that would accept them for who they were. So it's interesting that a lot of these other sort of um, uh, fuzzier boundaries that were now that are now become acceptable at the time, the the, the sort of gaming culture, the, the the role playing culture was the one that would accept anyone, and it's a safe place to to, to you know wear, for a guy to wear a dress because you're role playing, you know, um, and that's something that I I hadn't even thought about, and I thought that was you know made perfect sense to me. Someone else, yeah, yeah. Um I was intrigued by the list that you made in the hotel room. Yeah. Because I thought the subtext of it, of course, was these are responses that are somehow um, uh, not the, they're inadequate responses to these situations. These are non-integrated ways of responding mm -hmm. to these circumstances. And I wonder whether you couldn't stand on head, head and say that, that's what, that this is play and it's perfectly healthy responses to all these circumstances, and whether you couldn't ask the question, why does society pathologize healthy play? Mm. That's a, yeah, I, I I don't quite discuss it in that in that way, but that's a very that's a good point. That's a good way of putting it. And I think that we are. Well, I was going to say we are forced to grow up faster now than we ever used to be, but then I think about people having kids when they were fourteen in the medieval era and so forth. I mean, kids people have always grown up, and I think. One of the things that's, I think, happening you'll see in the culture is that not only is the gaming culture becoming more acceptable, but this idea that you are still in some kind of state of adolescence, that sense of adolescence is getting extended. So people are now living with their parents longer than they used to, be, not leaving the house uh, earlier. They're um, kickball leagues. Um, you know, all the stuff that is sort of, in a way, a celebration of culture. And this is the question that I raised for myself was what was it about me turning 40 and not having children and not being married? Was there something hardwired or intrinsically wrong or bad in my own 
you know, makeup, my own childhood, my own who, the man I became, that made me not feel like I was ready to fa face quote unquote adult responsibility. And you know, was Dungeons and Dragons to blame for it, or was I attracted to Dungeons and Dragons because I was already, my I was already predisposed to be that way. And um, you know, in retrospect, I wish that I had been able to accept that earlier and just say, this is a game I love. That I love it for the sheer love of play. And I think there's no there's no coincidence that because I am now a writer, I, people who play Dungeons and Dragons and are used to spinning narratives and telling stories are oftentimes people who go on to become writers or musicians or involved in the creative arts. Or they be, go in IT, one of the two. <laughs> so I'm going to just jump this sequence here because I see a frantic arm waving in the back. Don't be shy. <laughs> I hope you're all taking notes and not, you know, checking your Facebook pages. They're gaming, obviously. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was curious about the, you know, so, so you have this giant umbrella geek um, topic, but there's lots of subcultures within that. You know, yeah. It looks like you focus on D&D &D and, you know, World of Warcraft, stuff like that. Um, but there's other parts of that subculture as well, you know, comic books and anime and yep. gamers and stuff like that that you could have looked at. How did, yep. how did you select which, which subject matters you wanted to explore? It was extremely difficult. This goes back to actually your question about my methodology, it was very difficult because I, when I first started to, well, first of all, the first answer is that two or three of the chapters in this book are based on articles that I'd already written, which I had expanded upon. So there were articles about Tolkien and live action role playing and I think one article about online gaming. But I sat down and tried to, tried to think about what are all the, you know, in, in a perfect world, what would be all the, all the subcultures that I would like to try to explore. I know that, for example, online gaming in Asia is huge. And there's something very interesting that's happening in Korea and Japan and China about the way that gamers are being accepted in the culture as actual celebrities and sports stars in a way that they will probably never be in this country. And I really wanted to go to Asia and experience it firsthand. But the logistics of my own budget for the, art, for the book prevented me from doing that. I mean, there was some financial decisions that I had to make. In terms of the, the framework, I very much had to, as much as I wanted to include a lot of the science fiction subcultures, I really wanted to try to keep the, the trajectory sort of Tolkien fantasy, fantasy role-playing and sort of the tree from there without getting too deeply into um, the history of science fiction or what that's about and how that's different or uh, uh, collectible trading card games like magic or comic book culture or horror or uh, other genre fiction. Um, I talk a little bit about fan fiction in the book in, but not a lot. Um, so the short answer to your question was di very difficult to rein this topic in in a way that I felt was, was manageable. And I did have to say no to a lot of areas that I thought would, would have been very fruitful. But the other thing that sounds like a horrible, well, for people who are writing theses, theses, thesi, theses, this is something that you'll have to encounter as well, which is simply the deadline. You know, I had submitted this as a, my, my, my agent had submitted this book proposal, which I had written, I'd uh, turned it in, to her, she got a publisher interested. The publisher said, great, you have nine months to finish the book, having written about a th fifth of it, a quarter of it. And so given the, just the reality of how much time I had to write it and when I had to turn in the manuscript, there were certain things that I just couldn't do and couldn't include and, and for financial reasons as well. So as much as I like to think that it has a pure boundary, like the, re the, the decisions I made were pure based on sort of what was the best thing for the book. 
there were some other circumstances that just had to do with uh, sort of reality that kind of impeded, yeah. So there's a question there. I mean, here too, yeah. Uh, thanks a lot. Great talk. Uh, Thank really you. Interesting. I, I want to ask a question about the, this urge towards the real, right? It, mm -hmm. It's in your title to an epic quest for reality, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and it's often the way you know, fantasy is contrasted with reality, right? That why can't these people deal with reality? They only mm -hmm. mm -hmm. want to be in these fantasy worlds, and they're mm -hmm. not accepting reality. And I mean, it's, it's a funny kind of way of talking about the world, it seems to me. I mean, it's something we academics get, too, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We, we don't work in the real world, right? right? right we right, work right. in the academic, and it's only academic means that it only matters to people in this little world, it yep. doesn't matter in the yep. real world, right? Yep. I mean, so it's a kind of dynamic that appears all over the place, and I was thinking, well, maybe that's partly what's to explain why people who are fanatical about sports, that's okay, but if you're fanatical about Dungeons and Dragons or World of Warcraft, it's different because at least sports, there's some kind of real, right? You hit the ball, you know, right. you run down the field. Yep. Um, but I I'm not sure that's true either, though, right? Because even in baseball, you had these people who were just too into the statistics, right? Mm -hmm. And they're just crazy uh, baseball numbers fanatics, right? Mm -hmm. Who were regarded, I think, as fanatics mm -hmm. uh, or, or mm -hmm. crazies or geeks or freaks uh, by most players. So, so I, I guess, so when I hear, you know, the, ex the explanations for why people are into fantasy, and I, I, I'm sure I do this myself, but it, that there's that urge to justify it on the grounds that, well, it's real, actually. You know, it's mm, real. It's kind mm, of, mm. in a way, buying into I see saying, that right. same mass ideology. Uh, this has actually should just be saying, it's fun, right. deal with it, yeah. you know? And yeah. But, yeah. but sort of not being able to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And that's that hotel list, too, and, and mm -hmm. that, that's the kind of, that was kind of an interesting thing. You're and, right. And, yeah. I, you know, I study on animation, Japanese animation, and, and there's, that's all the language. You're like, how can we make animation more real? And when it's really real, it's when it moves us. It's when the characters come out. It's when the robots move the way they're supposed to move. Mm -hmm. There's that, that pull towards reality in a, in a space where it doesn't seem so appropriate. And I, I guess it, that was a kind of curious thing to me. Uh, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I, I was curious where, how you feel about that pull towards the reality. Right, building the castle. Right. Yeah, right. Uh, actually, we're going to build the castle. Yeah, let's try that. Or, or having a real battle with 14,000 people. I mm -hmm, mean, it's mm -hmm. an interesting kind of urge, and I, I just wonder mm. what you think might be mm. behind it. Yeah, I mean, I think you you probably answered, I mean, in your talking about it, you've really kind of answered what, or would, would have touched on the kind of uh, issues I would want to bring up there. I mean, I would say that the... It's possible that because I was a journalist asking questions of people and saying to them, why do you do this? People are inclined to come up with a good reason. I don't think that their reasons are invalid, but I do think that if someone has invested a lot of time and energy into anything, they have a justification for it, whether or not they thought about it or not. I mean, whether it's, you know, why are you a housewife? Why haven't you, you know, why are you not, you know, out there working? Or vice versa, why don't you have children? Whatever it is, people have reasons for that, and I think that they're not false reasons, but I think when you ask someone, they, that, that's, that's sort of how, they, how they, um, they're inclined to respond. And, and, Not at all. No. Right? See, not that, at all. That's, yeah. kind of, that's that journalism versus yep. being in the fan culture difference. It's yep. Yeah. Most people who, who I talked to who were um, doing the kind of, um, well, this isn't really cut and dry, but I, there's certainly people who just said, you know, this is, we're doing this because we love it. And, and they didn't necessarily say, this has taught me X, Y, and Z, this is good for you, like it's nutritious cereal or something like that. 
you know, it has, you know, fortified iron and 12 vitamins kind of thing. Um, the other thing that I thought about when you mentioned this idea of what is real or what, you know, what is fantasy is this idea that, you know, people often times do talk about how a, a, a piece of genre fiction, uh, particularly fantasy, is sort of frivolous because it's about a world that never existed. People say this about science fiction all the time, you know, it's not real literature because it's, you know, speculative and it's imaginary. Um, but we all forget that the issues that go on in these worlds are oftentimes directly relatable to our world, you know, the real world. What we're, you know, Tolkien talked about this a lot, that his characters are not, you know, just frolicking in the, in the woods singing songs. I mean, they're dealing with good and evil and there's all these problems and there's villains and there's murky characters and it's, 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 a, it's a morally complex universe, you know, that, that does, if you buy into the books and you get sucked along, along, along in that journey, it's not because you like to cavort with the fairies in the woods, it's because you, you're getting drawn into this very complicated drama. Um, but because the characters aren't human, they're other races or magical creatures and so forth, it, it automatically gets pigeonholed. And, um, anyway, that was just something that, that uh, as you were talking, sort of came to mind. Um, the other thing about the sports culture I thought was interesting is that, of course, in a way, baseball and, ba and football are war games, you know, if you really think about them. I mean, they are, I don't know, I don't know the history of the sports very much, but you imagine whoever came up with baseball thought, well, this is, certainly football is pretty obvious. It's, it's, it's a simulation of a battle situation where you're gaining and losing territory, and people forget that these were originally, yeah, men, yeah, men playing out, you know, they probably, when they couldn't really battle, they came up with games that were war games, and, and now it's just become this part of the culture that is so, I would be surprised 100 years from now if there aren't some other experiences akin to sports culture that are so ingrained in our day-to-day -day life that we don't pass judgment on them in the same way that you know, we have been with fantasy. I uh, just actually had a comment to follow up on that, which is I, um, I am a Harry Potter fan, and I've done more than my fair share of talking to journalists about, um, about fandom, mm -hmm. much more than my fair share. Mm -hmm. And um, I just wanted to point out that no matter how much geek cred any journalist has, I think any person who's involved in fandom is naturally going to have their hackles up. You know, they're going mm -hmm. to be very carefully choosing their words Absolutely. if they've ever run into a journalist before and probably trying to come up with some bullshit explanations that they think will play well mm -hmm. because it's really hard to say what you actually mean because it isn't acceptable in mainstream culture. Yep. You know? I mean, no matter how much it's gotten better, it's still not okay. Yep. Um, so as much as I think, you know, when I was listening to this guy talking about the SCA, I really believe that that's, you know, I really believe that that's what he feels, but I think it's also probably inappropriate for him to talk about how awesome it is to be, you know, bashing people with your sword. Who wouldn't want to do that? Right. Did you say that you wouldn't want to dress up in medieval armor right now and go bash people with rat and swords and really get into it? I don't believe you. I think that you're lying. Yeah. But it's not acceptable socially to say it. Right. You know, no matter what. No matter how nice the journalist is or how much right. bread he has. Well, he did talk about, what's interesting, I would respond to what he said in two ways. One is that, the part I didn't quote is that later in, earlier in the day, I interviewed him earlier and we talked about just sort of more sort of less esoteric, less esoteric issues, and he mentioned that there was something wonderful about having, being beaten on the, on the field of battle by, a, you know, someone who could be your grandmother, and then later that night sitting around the campfire having a mead with them. You know, there was, there was, there was that vicari uh, uh, visceral um, experience. The other thing that you mentioned is really very true is particularly the Society for Creative Anachronism are incredibly sensitive about how they've been portrayed. And actually, for me to be able to be part of this, organiza this event and report on it, I had to jump through many hoops 
to be officially sanctioned reporter on the premises. And I was actually sort of busted because I forgot to check in as a reporter when I camped with them. And they later found out that I was there. And they came over and sort of wagged their finger and said, this is not how we'll do it. We will now escort you around. Yeah. I mean, and then, and then, they, then they allowed me to speak to people officially. And this guy is actually one of them. And he was sort of considered by them someone who I think spoke, portrayed the organization in a way that they would like it to be portrayed. It's, yeah, it's, it's not so much the, uh, you know, not, not trusting people, but not trusting the journalists to be allowed in to, you know, what's going on. If I was running that, I probably would have kicked you out when I found out that you would come on. You know, I'm just, yeah. I'm just saying, like, sure. you know, um, I've, I've never kicked a reporter out of a convention, but if I had made it clear to somebody that they were expected to check in, I would have considered that, you know, a betrayal of, right. you know, you're not playing the game, right? You're right, not <laughs> right, right. Exactly, and it's, and it's different, in, like a renaissance fair is you go as a spectator, and you can dress up or not, but there are people there to perform for you. And that's a different, you know, when you go to King Richard's Fair and wherever it's in Connecticut, that's, a, a, it's an entertainment experience you're purchasing and you get to go into it like a theme park. The Society for Creative Anachronisms is not meant to be a spectator uh, um, performer. It's everyone who's in it is part of it. You, spe you are a participant in it and you have your own, so you're there for the pleasure of each other, people, of each other who are in the organization with you. You're not there to perform for anyone. And it's a much different kind of experience than it is going to a Ren Fair or, I mean, I don't know, just going down to Harvard Square the night that the, Harvard, that the Harry Potter book comes out. I mean, there's, a, there's an element of you can be part of it or not part of it, depending on what your choice is. So. Well, I kind of riffing a little bit off of that. I was really interested in hearing who you, or I guess alternately the marketing department, your publisher, thought the audience for this book was. Sure. Um, just, you know, because I... Especially with the way you know, the phrase the subtitle and Epic Quest and this kind of mm -hmm. art you describe mm -hmm. about going from your personal kind of denial to acceptance, this mm -hmm. is kind of tailor made for bringing along a reader who's uninitiated. And yep. you know, like you're talking about, you get a lot of resistance from the same communities you're covering. So, kind of who you were writing to mm -hmm. and for, and who's kind of accepting the book in that sense. Well, the, the, the correct answer is this is a book that appeals to everyone, and everyone, <laughs> and everyone, <laughs> and everyone will buy this book. And you, you will, right and you will buy. I'll hypnotize you. You will buy five copies of my book. Um, no, it's a good point. It actually, you know, unfortunately, in the, at least in the non-fiction, in the fiction world, if you're writing a novel and you want to have it sold, an agent reads it, they like it, it's done. The publisher likes it. They try to market it in a way, but they don't necessarily have target audiences in mind so much as is it either literary or genre. I mean, it's not, doesn't, it doesn't, you don't make a case for its market potential in the same way that with nonfiction. With nonfiction, you submit a proposal that includes your, mark, your platform, who you are, why you think you're a good spokesperson for this, why your book is better, different than any other book on the topic that's never been published, what your marketing strategy will be, who are the target audiences, what organizations or people do you have access to that will help you promote it. You know, it's, a, it's a completely different selling. This is the sort of dirty secret of, pu of publishing is that, at least in the nonfiction world, you're kind of making an argument that you have an audience for this book, and that's sort of more important than is it a good book, in a way. I'm painting a very broad brushstroke here about how it works, but that's generally, they're looking for you as an author to have some, some marketing savvy and some understanding of who will buy it. So I was hoping, my hope is that the book will appeal to people who are like me, who, and in fact, I've run into tons of people when I've talked to them about the book and met them in various bookstores, conventions. Oh, I used to play D&D. &D. They pick up the book and they're like, wow, I remember those maps. And, you know, the, and they are roughly my age. I kept running into 40-year-old men who were like, yeah, I used to play this game and I really miss it. And, now I have a wife and I have children and all my gaming buddies are, live in Timbuktu and, you know, they miss it. And there's a nostalgia. And I think when Gary Gygax died a year and a half ago, there was a huge outpouring of 
nostalgia for D&D. And I think it was in direct relation to how much the rise of online gaming had become so popular in the, in the consciousness of or the popular culture. That here was the old-fashioned version. Wasn't it fun when we played with just, you know, bones and stones and sticks and things like that, you know, pre-industrial version of, of gaming. The other audience, I'm hoping that we'll read it, is the, is the group of people who know someone in their life. Like, you're a gamer and you have a boyfriend who doesn't get what you do. This is the book you buy to give him for Christmas present to say, here, this will help you understand what I do and why I do it or why people like me do this. And, you know, the other hope is that the audience is, you know, again, I don't mean to compare my work to other people, but there are a lot of journalists who have done similar things. One of the guys who blurred my book, A.J. Jacobs, did that book, The Year of Living Biblically, where he tried to live as if they would have lived in the Old Testament, and he tried to read the, what's the one about Mr. Know-it-all, he reads the encyclopedia from A to Z. So it's the, the, the tradition of first-person narrative journalism of a journalist doing something kind of a bit out of the ordinary and reporting on their experience. And the idea, hopefully, is, if I've told my story well, that a person who just enjoys narrative nonfiction, who likes to hear a good story, that the story will carry them through in all the minutia of World of Warcraft and Lord of the Rings is yeah, sort of interesting, but that's not really what's really interesting. It's the story of the writer. So I did make the case that there were at least three target audiences for the book. And, you know, it will bear out as to whether it's, that's the case or not. But I, as, a, as a writer who's been freelance writing for many years but had never written a book, this is my first book, I was amazed at the level at which this is something that publishers think about and worry about and agents do. It is, a, you know, book selling is a business. And I'm not Suzanne Summers, so I can't just, I mean, I want to be Suzanne Summers, but I can't be. I want to role play Suzanne Summers. Um, so actually going off of that question and, and your response, um, given that you were very aware of the pressures that were involved in sort of making and therefore selling this book, it's a very different set of pressures than a lot of us here have in academic in academic publishing. You guys don't know how easy you have it. Yeah. <laughs> Different set of I problems. Know, I, <laughs> um, I, was, I was wondering if you ever encountered moments when creative nonfiction came into your head as opposed to fiction. Were there ever moments when, or did you ever? You mean when I wanted to change? Yeah. Sure. And, you know, did you ever come really close and decide journalistic yeah. ethics, you know? I mean, there's been some tweaking here. I wouldn't say that I've, I've misrepresented anything. There have been, I mean, names have been changed in a couple of cases because that was the wish of the persons I, I interviewed. Um, there's a certain, one of the pieces of the story is also about a personal relationship that I was having at the time with a woman who was my girlfriend at the time who didn't understand why this man that she loved was, had this penchant for quoting Lord of the Rings lines at any given moment. And, would be looking for his car in the parking lot, but would actually be pretending he was Boromir hunting, hunting, hunting for orc or whatever. And you know, that was something that was I needed to be delicate with in terms of how I was going to present that because this person is you know, more or less still my friend and I didn't want to embarrass her. So I had to think about creative ways to present that personal story without, uh, which is what happens when you write nonfiction. If you're writing about people in your life, there's also people in my family who I wanted to be very careful with how I uh, how I approach that. Um, in terms of just the portraits of the people, I feel like, sure, I've definitely chosen the moments that I felt were the most dramatic or the most emblematic. There's nothing in there that they did, in my view, that they didn't say. I mean, all the quotes are, I think, accurate. Um, uh, 
But yes, once you start to tell a story, there is a desire to make the story as compelling as possible. And sure, you're, uh, it's, it, I was tempted to kind of say, well, what if, you know, and then this didn't quite happen this way, but, you know, what if, but I'm pretty sure I kept that in check. So it's a good question, though. Is there a, a, a nonfiction, you guys don't have MFA program here, right? But you can do it, can you do a, what? But can you? There is a writing program. But there's a writing program, right? You can, yeah, that's right. Science writing, okay. Well, you can't make up stuff because it's because it's science. The castle building project in the book, because I don't really identify those people as gamers in right. any way. I mean, I see them as craftspeople, which right. is not the same. Yeah, I was, I was, you know, for that particular chapter. Um, I mean, first of all, the 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 two sort of watchwords for the book are gaming and fantasy. So it wasn't necessarily just game players. So Harry Potter, the guys who dress up like Harry Potter, are not really playing a game so much as they're just involved in this fandom fantasy interacting with in some way. And yeah, I would say that, um, to get back to your question about which items did I choose, I just wanted to really include that because I thought it was amazing. And I maybe stretched the definition of what that was because they aren't really reenacting, they're not creating a castle that would have existed in, let's say, Lord of the, you know, Lord of the Rings. It was a, what they thought was a reconstruction of a 14th century Burgundian fortress. But what I found was the experience of being on the site, for me personally, was a very similar feeling I felt reading a book like Lord of the Rings, which was that imaginative place that my head went, or my psyche went. This desire to not be who I was, but this desire to live in another place or another time, was activated when I was wandering around watching these people. And I wanted to, I mean, if I could have quit my job and found a way to make it work, I would have moved, I mean, in my fantasy world, I would have moved there in a minute, in a heartbeat, because there was something very satisfying about this fantasy um, place, which was reconstructing this thing that never really existed, but doing it in the real world. Real, there's that question about the real world, right? Doing it in the real world. So it wasn't just reading about a book and imagining. It was like literally spending all day like with a hammer and chisel. To me, there was something very, uh, sat it seemed like it would be very satisfying. So I can see that from your perspective, coming to a project like that as a gamer, but do you think that that was the experience of the craftspeople who were working on the project? Because I suspect that, that they're motivated by a lot of different sure. things than you are. Some of them were, were refugees from Paris who had been living in the corporate world, were doctors, lawyers, and who just were really tired of the rat race. And they were looking for a way to, in the same way maybe that people who were like in the 60s and 70s interested in leaving the cities and back to the land and the sort of uh, living communally and um, was attractive to people of that generation. I think there was something, some disenchantment of the real world. And these people thought, this is a way. The other thing, to be honest, is that this was a, a, a kind of a crazy project that this guy came up with. And he persuaded the French government in this particularly economically depressed area, because this is really a region only known for winemaking. They don't have a lot, a lot else going on. That it was sort of a public works project. So he got the government to infuse a lot of local money 
to start it. And then once it started, now it's self-financed through admission, you know, if you go to see it. So some people probably just thought, oh, this is a weird project, but it's a job, <laughs> you know. And the ones who've stuck with it are the ones who believe in the project, you know, who believe in the value of what's going on. But the ones who probably worked for just a couple of years and then moved on to something else, that didn't, it didn't capture their imagination in the same way that the guy who's directing the project, who, inter who in interestingly enough, will probably not live to see the completion of it because he's in his 70s. I mean, he might, but if he doesn't live past like his 85th birthday or something, he probably, which is, I think, interesting idea. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you for the plug. Yeah, wonderful. Hey, great. Um, yes, in fact, I will be on tour. Uh, the tour is um, most every state in New England. And uh, I've already been to New York for one event. And uh, I'll be, I was in, in Atlanta in North Carolina. Where was I? This is Tuesday. I must be in Cambridge uh, kind of thing. Um, but I'll be in the Midwest. I'll be in uh, doing a swing through Chicago, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Madison, Iowa City, not in that order, in mid-October. And then the first week of November, I'll be in the West Coast, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle. And a couple more events in New York City. And whoever's listening, if you want to invite me, <laughs> you know how to reach me. The other thing I wanted to mention, just for any, if you, if you don't buy the book, although I hope you all buy the book, um, if you want to just um, uh, pick up the flyer, I have, in addition to my tour schedule in the back, I have a contest that I'm running called the Great Geek Giveaway. And it's an opportunity for people to share some geeky moment, either in a short little paragraph or a photo or, or a video. And I'm giving away cool prizes, including the new Dungeon Master's Guide, too, which is coming out next week, uh, and passes to Gen Con 2010, and some other a year's membership in the British Tolkien Society and other stuff. So um, it's an opportunity to share and spread the geek love, as it were. So there's a flyer about that over there. So Ethan Gilstorf, thanks very much. For Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for coming. And if you'd like to purchase, we have a bookseller here, 20% off, happy to autograph it, which increases the value by at least 10 cents just by putting the autograph on the book. So. And given that it's 20% off, that makes it a real deal, so <laughs> don't miss that. Let me also just announce that uh, our next colloquium here in this space next week uh, will be Hannah Rochelle. Hannah is a new professor in STS. She works on camouflage, and she'll be talking about a new book, which I think is called How Not to Be Seen. But in any event, she'll be talking about the whole no a very broad notion of camouflage. Um, she works as an artist. She works as a filmmaker. She did a wonderful film on uh, Marais and the notion of uh, animal motion and motion in general. So she's, yeah. So, And finally, um, we have a reception after this. Uh, we'll do the loaves and fishes trick if we have to and see how far we can stretch it. But that'll be in 14E304. So. That means nothing to me, but it means something to you. So. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, thanks.